The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Peter 1, 3 through 7. Listen to God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May God bless our understanding and application of his word. The phrase, abandon hope, all ye who enter here, was written by the Italian poet Dante He saw that as the inscription written over the gates of hell. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Dante was saying that the pains, the greatest pain of hell would not so much be the bodily suffering you might think about as the absolute end and termination of any possible escape from that place. It would be forever. Hope in the future is actually a rare commodity in our time. I don't know if we were to conduct a man-in-the-street interview to ask people, are you hopeful about the future? I can imagine a little bit the wheels that would start to turn in people, and and they would think, well, am I optimistic or pessimistic? And, And that would primarily depend on their health, their employment, their friendships, their family relationships, how are things going? You know, the answer to that question that we ask many times so quickly as we pass by people, never pausing to really hear the answer, how are you? We don't really want to know the answer, do we? Or at least we don't give it with all honesty and completeness. Are you hopeful? And people would think, well, yeah, I've got a few causes for optimism. I'm basically in good health. The family's doing okay. Junior just got into the college of choice. Yeah, I'm hopeful. But not many people would answer our man-in-the-street interview based on the kind of thinking that 1 Peter 1.3 contains as a foundation set for a supernaturally based hope. Not just how do you feel, 
Do you think your circumstances are going to be fortunate? Really, a deeper question is, do you have hope in the work of God that based on what he has already done in the future, he will do great things, unbelievable things, in the days to come and in that final day of Jesus Christ? I think the spirit of our age doesn't really know how to define hope. At best, people think about it as a sort of vague feeling of optimism and not much more. And it's typified in a an old song, those of you who are children or even youth don't necessarily know this song, but a few of you go back enough to remember this of Rodgers and Hammerstein of the late 40s and 50s and early 60s. And there's the musical Carousel, an interesting show, but it has one of its main songs, something I don't really care for, even though I like the musical as a whole. It's kind of a thematic song, actually, of that show, Carousel. The singer says, When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of the lark. And then the song concludes, Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk alone. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? The problem, I'm approaching it as a theologian, of course, but the problem is it never tells me what I'm hoping in. What is the substance of hope? Who is the guarantor of hope? What agency makes that hope something solid and substantial? All it tells me is about a vague, hazy hope in hope. And I'm afraid that won't satisfy very well. We need to know on what is hope based. And is there someone or something that we can rest in that is solid that will be the guarantee of what God will do, good things that we can expect from God? Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 12 once spoke about people who do not know Christ with this phrase. He said they are people who are, quote, without God and without hope in this world. We need something much more than just the panacea of a sentimental song that says things will get better or feel good about yourself. These things don't sustain. They're like a puff of smoke that's quickly gone. Today we're looking at what Peter calls living hope, lively hope that is energized by literally the life of God in the gospel in the death and resurrection of his Son, Jesus Christ. Remember, we've said already a little introduction to this letter of 1 Peter, that he was writing to people in a troublous time when persecution was just really beginning to rise in the Roman Empire against Christians. Harder days were still ahead, really hard days, in which both Peter and Paul, along with many others, lost their lives. That hadn't happened just yet, but it was heating up, let's put it that way. It was difficult, even in some cases, to be employed if you were too strictly associated with Christianity in parts of the Roman Empire. People were suffering. People were being harassed or, or even jailed for Christianity. And Peter's writing to people that are saying, hey, aren't we part of the victory of Jesus Christ? Where's the victory? It seems like nothing but trouble is in my path. Is this the way it's supposed to be? 
I'm going to give you three points to look at here today, and for a rare time, uh, they actually have the alliteration of uh, the same letter for the points, if that helps you. I want you to see Christian hope being born in a cradle, worn as a crown, and refined in a crucible. 1 Peter 1.3 demonstrates, first of all, how the only satisfactory source of human hope is cradled or born in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in his great mercy he has given us new birth into living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope that a Christian has is a new hope the world has never seen before. It's a new creation. In fact, in older days, of course, there were saints of God who who hoped in their God. They looked toward the future and said, well, God's in charge. I'm sure he's going to bring a good result. And But the fact was that Old Testament hope is a lot like the Rodgers and Hammerstein carousel hope. It never quite specified exactly how God would work out your future or when or by what means or agency. It was more just a generalized thing, like what David said in Psalm 16, which is very valid. I'm not denying in any way the the strength of these promises. But David said, in my flesh I will see God. Wonderful. But how, when, who, what are the particulars of that? David could not have told you. He just said, God will do it. David is the one who said, you will not abandon me to the grave. Job is the one who said, in my flesh I will see God. Both of those are hope statements, but they don't tell how or why or for what reason historically. And they're promises that that the, the Old Testament person is clinging to in kind of a dim fog of just exactly in what way is it going to work out. Well, we have something different. Our hope is given a new birth, a living birth, by the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an event that the Old Testament saint could see only in the most general possible terms. But think of what that event meant for Peter. Just think of him a minute. Not so many years prior to this, maybe about 30 years prior, Peter was present in Jerusalem when Jesus, his Lord, died on the cross. And we know that this was a shattering event to him. We read about how he wept after he denied the Lord three times. We know that he went and locked himself up with the other uh, disciples in a place of hiding, lest they be arrested and dragged in and suffer the same fate as Jesus had. His heart had to be sinking like a stone for those days of sheltering and just wondering, how do we get out of town? How do we go back and pick up the fishing nets? Life is over as far as this whole program of following Jesus and seeing a new age coming because of him. Peter was weeping and mourning and in a pit of bleak dismay. But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? It's so hard for us to recapture what Easter morning was like. When the word came from Mary Magdalene and the other women, the grave's empty. Peter, his body isn't there. We don't know what has happened here. And Peter getting up and running 
with John, that foot race to the tomb where it says the two of them in John chapter 20 ran there. And it says they looked in, they saw the empty tomb, they saw the the grave clothes lying there as if the body had simply disappeared from the midst of them, and they believed. That was the birth of hope. Their faith in Christ that had existed in him as a real person now existed again in a whole new dimension. He was alive again. And their faith was reborn. We read that, that Peter even ate breakfast with Jesus on the beach. The, the passage specifies in the end of John there that there were fish broiled there and bread. And trying to, trying to make that a very particular, detailed event that this was real. This was the real Jesus communing there and eating. And this is part of the hope literally being reborn for Peter. Well, new birth, of course, is the Bible's term for what happens in, in every new Christian. First Peter 1.3 said, God has given us new birth, us, new birth into living hope through the resurrection. Same thing that happened to Peter. Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit, the very life of God, the presence of God in Christ in our lives, comes and dwells and begins to work in the life of a Christian. And we could spend a lot of time developing that whole doctrine of the new birth. People often talk about hope as just something they wish could happen. I might say, I hope that in the remaining years of my life, I would visit Hawaii. I don't really have that big an urge to go to Hawaii, but uh, I hope I go there. Well, you know, there really aren't any solid prospects. Uh, It's very expensive. And I don't know, you know, I'd I'd have to wear a Hawaiian shirt if I went there, and I'd look pretty strange in that. So, you know, while that's a wish, it isn't really a projection of something that I feel very solid about or even need to see happen in my life. And that's the way we are always using hope. I hope my, my children decide to come home for Christmas. Maybe they will. Maybe they've got another program to follow for their Christmas celebration. The right understanding of hope is, you might think of it as faith that looks first to what God did in the past, and then on that basis is able to turn around 180 degrees and look with solid confidence at what God will do in the future. People sometimes say, what's the difference between faith and hope? Well, faith is believing God, believing that Jesus was the Christ, he came to die for sinners, that he rose, believing the things that are from the past, but then applying what we believe into the future, projecting it forward and saying, look, God has done these hard things. Why will he not do all the things he's promised? That it's a great day of his return. My salvation will be revealed because I'm a new creation now in Christ. Colossians 3.1 says, Those who have trusted in Jesus have already been raised with him. We talk about that big fancy word, eschatology, the doctrines of the future. Dr. Light and I are planning to teach some about that in our next quarter of adult Sunday school. Things that are promised to happen in the future. Are they just speculations? Are they just wild prophecies that somebody dreamed up and maybe 
one or two, you know, look like they're accurate, and so we declare the person a prophet? Or has God's Word projected things that are going to happen, and we believe they're going to happen exactly as promised because of so many things already done? Faith in the past turns around and becomes hope for the future. And the bodily resurrection of Christ is the pivotal hinge for this hope. It's the hinge on which the, the door of the future opens for the Christian. A great wonder that God has accomplished assures that when he returns, he will do all the things that he has said. Faith in the bodily resurrection is the cradle where Christian hope is reborn. Well, secondly, we think of our hope then looking at the future, and we say the crown, the epic culminating event of our hope will come at Christ's second appearing. Peter talks about it as an inheritance, an inheritance that is so certain it can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you and ready to be revealed at the last time. It's so easy for us to lose the focus on the second coming of Christ. You know, we all, every Christian knows it's there. We say, oh, sure, Jesus is going to come. And then we click a switch and and turn back to the present, right? We don't really dwell very long or very much on that promise that at his appearing in history to bring down the curtain on this current age of history as we know it, all things are going to change. Christians will be bodily raised and, and glorified, and those without Christ will be raised for judgment, for condemnation. And a great age, a new age, what we call the new heavens and new earth, will commence. These things will happen. We don't just hope maybe, maybe, maybe. They will happen because God has promised he will crown the experience of faith in Christ with that visible salvation. Yes, we're saved today. It's not that, not that salvation is, eludes us today. We're say, we say we are saved. We repeated it in the words of the catechism this morning. We are justified and adopted, and we're being sanctified. Those are all the processes of salvation that are real for us right now. But one wasn't mentioned just because we didn't do enough of the catechism. We will be glorified. The crowning event of our salvation will finally be revealed. But until it it does come, we're not uncertain about it. You know, sometimes we who believe the gospel of the Bible might interact with others who are only nominal Christians who have a works idea of earning their way and pleasing God or God grades on the curve for everybody or something like that. And you come along and, and say, well, I'm sure of my salvation in Christ. And they look at you and say, how presumptuous. How can you possibly be so proud, so arrogant? Not a matter of arrogance at all. Not a matter of presumption at all. It is a solid, secured hope in what is guaranteed that will be revealed at the great coming of Christ. And the figure of an inheritance is used here. Don't we all daydream at some point in life about a non-existent uncle that we haven't really known about? Oh, lots of dramas and stories are based on this. You know, the letter arrives, certified mail. You look it over. Well, who in the world is this from? 
and you open it up, and Uncle Thomas, who you never heard of, who owns a great ranch in Montana, has passed away, and you are his direct heir of the whole ranch, of all the buildings, of all the stock, of all the money that's in the bank, of all the good investments he's had, and congratulations, you have inherited an estate worth, let's say, $3 million. Wow. Don't we daydream about that? How we think that would solve all our problems? Well, Peter is saying we are the heirs of God in Christ. And that isn't speculative, and it isn't a wild daydream, that in fact the wealth of God's salvation and glorification is secure for us. And Peter, in effect, is saying, look, I was there. I saw the signing of the will. It was signed in blood, nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing fake about this inheritance. It is secure. You are entitled to it if you belong to Christ. And he uses these three adjectives. It's imperishable. It's unable to spoil. It's unfading. I could unpack each of those words if I had time, and I don't. But, you know, isn't it true that there are so many things that we would like to have in this world, whether it's a new car a new house, uh, investments, I don't know. And we, we think, boy, if I could just get hold of that, you know, one of those brand new blank model cars, it smells so good. I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this very much. I don't have too much sense of smell. I seem to have lost it. It's actually a blessing, you know, you, uh, not to smell a lot of things. Women used to wear perfume. I don't know, ladies, why you've all stopped wearing perfume. If you're doing it to impress me, it's not working because I I cannot smell things like that unless it was really loaded on. And people get in my car, which is a year and a half old, and they say, oh, this this new car smells so good. I say, really? I haven't smelled it at all. I don't get it. But isn't it true that that new car smell or or that that new washer and dryer or whatever it is, something you you come to possess, you say, I really wanted to get this and enjoy it, guess what? Time for the man to come repair the dryer or the car, you know, needs transmission work or something. There, there is nothing you desire as an inheritance or as a possession on this earth that can be said to be imperishable, unable to spoil, unfading. You get it, and in a short time, you're fixing it. It's broken down. You need to replace it. Peter's saying, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God that he talked about in the, in the prior verses that we've looked at a couple weeks ago have been given this new birth into living hope, and you'd better know that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. There's no doubt about that. It is for you, believer in Christ. It's kept, and you are being kept for it. God has put you under a sense of his Holy Spirit protective custody that you will persevere until the day of receiving this wonderful inheritance of eternal salvation in Christ. Do you ever, you know, add up your accounts, do your banking, pay your bills? I was just paying some bills the other day and looking at the balance in the bank and I was saying, well, how do I know that money's there? Are they... What what if I was to go there and they said, we don't know you. Do you have an account here? Boy, I'd fall over dead on the spot. 
if they didn't have my money. But, but there's this organization called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is supposed to say that if the worst thing happens to the bank and it completely fails, my money won't disappear. Oh, that, that makes me feel better. I've never had to test it or find out, but I sure am glad to know the FDIC is there. But you know, the FDIC is nothing more than a puff of smoke compared to the guarantee of the sure grip of God upon a believer's future. Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, believer. And you can say you are sure but a crown in heaven if you know by faith that you belong to Jesus Christ today. You have a salvation ready to be revealed. It's it's right there behind the curtain, and when Christ opens history's final curtain, there it is. The reward of eternal life. The declaration uh, of Christ upon you as his believer in time and space when he says, justified by grace through faith in the righteousness of Christ, go forward into the things I've prepared for you rather than word of of condemnation that some will hear. Well, thirdly, I ask you to look at 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And add to the cradle of hope founded on the resurrection and the crown of hope as an assured inheritance at Christ's second coming, this third idea, there is here acknowledged a crucible in which hope operates in the days between now and then. Peter is not a pure idealist. He's a realist. And he's lived through a lot of sufferings himself, you sense, when he writes this. Look, you can greatly rejoice in this hope, he says, although for a little while you have to suffer griefs of many kinds. There have been times when I've felt if I approached this text with just raw human interpretation, I would feel sometimes like a little while is almost a mocking word to some people. Talk to somebody that's dying of ALS and say, for a little while, you have to suffer. Talk to somebody who's had rheumatoid arthritis in a severe way throughout all of their life, and they're in their 70s today, so crippled up they can barely move without pain, and say, a little while, you've been suffering. Talk to a cancer patient when the drugs can no longer control the pain and say, well, it's only a little while. God is not mocking us, but the, pain, the pains and the difficulties and the illnesses and the hardships and the broken-hearted situations that we have to suffer really are a little while alongside what is coming for us, a great eternity of glory with God. We don't have the fullness of that. It's guaranteed to us, but we don't have it in our hands just yet. In Romans 8.24, Paul says we are saved in hope, but who hopes for what he already has? We don't have it yet completely, but it is guaranteed. And so hope is that trust in God's future guarantee. Well, then how do we think about the hard troubles Sometimes people think about their lives as a balanced scale. Some of you may have a, a, as an ornament in your house somewhere, a, the old-fashioned kind of scale, you know, a, two pans suspended from a, a balance arm, and you put a weight in one side and a weight in the other side, and, you know, 
jewelers might use these or people who have to measure fine quantities of something. And you might look at your life and say, well, here's the today pan. Boom. You know, somebody parked a Mack truck on it. And it's all the way down. And here's the tomorrow in Christ pan. And it seems to be way up in the air there. How can I get these things in balance? Maybe my answer doesn't seem very profound, but I think it is the biblical answer. It's simply a question of where are we addressing our gaze most of the time. And isn't it true that most of the time our gaze is on the today side? You could call our lives the today show. The tomorrow show is is kind of invisible, and we don't deliberately take it out and look at it very often or praise God for it or dwell on it or meditate on it. Or if you thought of it in terms of uh, of, of relative uh, dimness or brightness of lights. The truth of the matter is that the Today Show part of our life is like a, a dim flashlight with a pen light bulb in it that's almost gone with no energy and a very dim light is there. But we say, oh, look at the light. The, that, that's a troublesome light. We don't look at the other side of the pan, which has a full rise of the morning sun of brightness that can't even be gazed upon directly. We don't bother to look upon that very often and hold the two together. It's like a speed bump in the road versus Mount Everest. But all our concentration is on the speed bump in the road. And Peter is saying, I I want to direct your thinking into this great reality, this inheritance, this crown that is awaiting you, because if you would dwell on this, in it you will greatly rejoice. Next time we'll go on and see in verse 9 when one of the great phrases of 1 Peter, the phrase in the King James is joy unspeakable and full of glory. I once uh, had a radio ministry when I was a church planter and the radio ministry had a you know, spot of a message and because it was a penniless church planter without even a church facility, but we were meeting in rented quarters so you know, the, it was partly for promoting the church, and it said at the end of the broadcast, if you want more information about this new ministry, call this number. It was my home number. So every once in a while, I'd get a call from the end of the radio broadcast, and one, one day I picked it up right after the broadcast had, had aired, and a lady with no introduction didn't say hello or anything. She said, Preacher, do you have the joy unspeakable and full of glory? What would you answer if somebody introduced their phone call to you that way? And I just thought for five seconds and said, yes, ma'am, I sure do, because I do. And we had an interesting conversation of what joy unspeakable and full of glory is. We're going to talk about it hopefully next week. So many of us think of joy as, as what I would call mere happiness, giddiness, you know, the kind of joy that some people go in search of on New Year's Eve uh, and get a joy out of enough glasses of champagne. I don't think of that as joy. What Peter's thinking about here is a, a more like a deep artesian spring within your life of refreshing and watering and, and growth-inducing, persevering trust in God by the Holy Spirit. But it's important that you have to be looking at these things, praying about these things, pondering these things, thanking God for these things, not simply tunnel gaze at the speed bumps, because there are plenty of them, and you'll always find them, and the longer you look at them, the bigger they loom for you.
I guarantee it. Peter can say a little while because he's talking about their true relative size. They tend to shrink when you're thinking upon and celebrating the great joys that are ahead in Christ. This principle is seen in Hebrews 12 where it tells us of Jesus who, it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. I love that phrase. It just seems to speak so well for itself. How try to put yourself in Jesus' place knowing that you had to go to that cross and you had to accept it willingly. You couldn't be compelled to accept it. But you had to willingly accept it. And it says he did it, horrible as it was. He knew how horrible. He knew how painful. He knew all the social and the psychological and the emotional and the spiritual and the physical horror that was there. But for the joy that was before him, he endured it. That's what we're called to. Fixing upon the joy that is before us is called hope, folks. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, Our light momentary troubles are securing for us an eternal weight of glory that surpasses them all. Now again, I'm not mocking your troubles. They're real, they're hard, they're painful. And they might knock you flat for long periods of time. But in light of the joy that is before you, they are light and momentary. When compared to eternal glory promised to us, they are indeed light and momentary. And hope in the Christ who is to be revealed is the only way you're ever going to get that into a right perspective. To you I say what Peter did. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into living, abiding, triumphant hope. Our Father, we pray that we might take hold of this reality. The reality is no less true for whether we have grasped it or not. Hope is there for us. You offer it. You you have it spilling over so many verses of your word where people struggled with things as hard or even worse than what we have seen. But we have often, Lord, failed to avail our, our sight, our faith, from looking hard and studying deep at the hope that is before us. Fix our eyes on this. Lift our eyes to this. We rejoice in him who was raised, who is coming, and who is triumphant over everything in our path. And it is the name of Jesus that we name with gladness. Amen.